Did you know that um, Mother's Day was started in May? We having issues here? 1907, in a Methodist church in Grafton, West Virginia, by a woman by the name of Anna Jarvis, whose mother had just passed away, and she wanted to find a, a, a way to honor her. And thus we have Mother's Day. Now, I was blessed to have a, a mother who not only cared for us emotionally and intellectually and physically, but she was also a spiritual mentor uh, to me as well. Uh, she prayed for me uh, daily. She modeled uh, the spiritual life for us, and she gave me wise counsel uh, when I needed it. Uh, my wife, Melinda, has done the same not only for me, but also for our children and now for our, good, our grandchildren. So it's good. It's good that we have a, a Sunday to honor these important women in our lives. And I bet a lot of you could say the, the same thing about your mother. And I bet a lot of you remember some mom rules uh, that you had growing up. Uh, I asked uh, my siblings, uh, what were some of the rules they remembered um, that our, our mother had? And, and here's where some of them. Uh, never talk back. That was a big one. Uh, don't or always tell the truth. Uh, don't say, shut up. Your moms have that one? No? Okay. Um, or say the Lord's name in vain. That was punishable by death. <clears throat> uh, do your chores before you uh, go out to play. Uh, be home when the streetlights come on in our little town. Uh, no piercings. Uh, my four sisters were not allowed to have any piercings until... They left home. Now, I think some of them were like sneaking it, but that was the rule. And then dress modestly was pretty big as well. Back in the 60s, um, when skirts were starting to get shorter, my sisters weren't allowed to have skirts much above the knees. And so once they left the house, they had this trick. I just learned about it. They would roll them up into their belt like that. And then, of course, let them back out, at least you better, before you got home. So those were some of our rules. And you probably remember some rules of your own. Of course, there were good reasons for most of the rules. They kept us safe. Uh, they kept us from doing dumb things. And they helped to build a strong moral base as well. And probably, if you're like me, you, you tested some of those rules. And, and maybe you even went out for a, a full onslaught rebellion against some of those rules. And depending upon uh, what church you attended, if any, when you were growing up, you might have had more rules in your church, like uh, no meat on Friday during Lent, or, or no alcohol, or, or no gambling, or go to church every Sunday, or observe the Sabbath. You know, you might have had some rules like that. We were out a couple weeks ago with some friends, and uh, I ordered a glass of wine, and that started a conversation about how the, the rules have changed. A generation or, or two ago, a Methodist pastor would, would not have ordered wine in, in public. Maybe private, <laughs> but isn't that right, Jonathan? But, but not in public. So we're in a, a series of sermons uh, on the, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and we're learning about the teachings of Jesus on living the Christian life. Uh, last week, Jesus taught his followers how they need to be salt and light, how we need to be a, a positive influence in our culture. Uh, today, Jesus teaches on the role of the law and the prophets, and I'm beginning in verse 17. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one the least of his commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, Judaism was and is a religion of the law. And by law, I mean the Hebrew scriptures, especially the first five books called the Torah. And Judaism believes that that God revealed himself to Abraham and then to Moses and, and the Hebrew prophets. And by obeying the law, they are living within the revealed will of God. Now, of course, the trouble is, is that none of us can follow uh, the, the law. And, of course, neither could, could Israel. When, whenever Israel would stray from God's laws, God sent the prophets to call them back to a, a life of obedience. But Jesus was frequently getting on the bad side of the Pharisees because he refused to follow all the rules. <laughs> now, the Pharisees were a religious group within uh, Judaism, and they were particularly strict in making sure that all 613 of the commandments in the Old Testament were followed, even the small, minor ones. Plus, there were other rules that had been added by the, ra- the, by the rabbis called the Talmud. Jesus followed a lot of these rules. His parents had him circumcised. He observed the religious festivals. He attended synagogue. But he ignored some of them as well. Uh, he, he, he broke the rules around the observance of the Sabbath, didn't follow the Jewish days of fasting, didn't obey the ritualistic washing of hands before uh, eating, and in fact turned over the tables in the temple and hung out with people who were considered uh, sinners, unclean. Now, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee himself before his conversion. But after he encountered Christ on the Damascus Road, he began to teach that, yeah, it is not possible to follow all the rules because of our sinful nature. We have this bent towards sinning. So we always fall short. Paul began to argue that that, that we can never earn our way by obeying all the laws to to gain God's acceptance. And that's why Jesus came, that he died on the cross to atone for our sins. And when we place our, our faith in him, we are born again and we're given a new heart by the Holy Spirit who changes us from the inside out. Now, not all the Christian community believed this. Uh, There were uh, Jewish Christians who continued to follow the Jewish religious rules and to insist that that Gentile Christians uh, had to do the same thing. It turns into a big fight. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. And so a a big council was called in Jerusalem, and all the big names are there, Peter and and James and and Paul and Barnabas and all the others, and they have a, a, a lot of debate. And they finally agreed that salvation is by grace alone. And that Gentile converts to the faith do not need to follow all the Jewish rules and customs. And they sent messengers out to all the churches worldwide to to announce this decision. And everything seems to be settled and the church is moving along. But it's not settled. It's just gone underground. 
and it rears its ugly head in the city of Antioch. Peter's there. Peter is, is in Antioch. He's leading the church there, and he, he's hanging out with all these new Gentile uh, Christians. After all, they are all one in Christ now, male and, and female, slave, free, Jew or Gentile. They're all one. But when the Jewish Christians arrive in Antioch, Peter stops associating with the Gentiles. He, he, he pulls away because of, of social pressure and fear, and he, he allowed the fear of, of what others think to keep him from doing the right thing. Oh, oh no. No, thank you, Peter said. I, I never eat ham. Making all the legalists smile in approval. And Peter or Paul sees the hypocrisy. And he says, Peter, you are a hypocrite. The smell of ham still lingers on your breath. We, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. That's in Galatians chapter 2. So Paul calls him on the carpet. He publicly confronted Peter's unbiblical behavior and then calls him exactly what he is, a hypocrite. You see, the Jewish Christians wanted everyone to conform to their rules and their regulations about what a real believer did and did not do. And Peter goes along with them. He, he conformed, but Paul, he refuses to surrender this freedom that he has in Christ. So when we hear these words of Jesus, do not think that I've come to a, a, abolish the law, the prophets, or to fulfill them. We're kind of scratching our heads thinking, what does that mean? And was Jesus facing some kind of pressure that, that he was missing some of the Jewish rules and he was getting some criticism for that? Is he, was he trashing the Bible? Jesus says, nope. He says, if you think I'm here to start something new and do away with those laws, forget it. That's what he says. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, if you thought I was going to get rid uh, of those laws, or maybe to dumb them down, or maybe to lower the bar so you can get over a little bit easier, you're wrong. I've not come to dumb anything down. I have come to fulfill all that was taught in the Old Testament. Verse 19, he says, Anyone who breaks one of the least of his commandments... Again, he's talking about the Old Testament rules. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's saying, I, I, what I'm about to say in no way annuls what you've been taught in the past. He says, I'm not lowering the standard. I'm actually raising it. And then verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. So what does that mean for us today? Let me, I'm going to mention three things here. First of all, that Jesus and the writer of Matthew's gospel have a high view of Scripture. Now, what do I mean by that? Even though that it was written by humans, they view it as God-inspired, as God-breathed. They view it as, as having authority in our lives. They don't see it as merely a, a product of human imagination or as some antiquated sayings of a time long gone. 
In fact, Matthew goes out of his way to show how Jesus fit in with the Old Testament. Over and over again, Matthew will quote the Old Testament scripture to show how Jesus has fulfilled it. And in chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew begins with, of all things, a genealogy. Now, if you want to bore people, if, if you want to find some way to, to have them not read what you're writing, start with a genealogy. So-and-so was born of so-and-so, born of so-and-so. But he does it to show, to establish Jesus' lineage through his father Joseph, back to King David, all the way to Abraham. In other words, that Jesus was a part of God's plan. You see, you can't understand the the, the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. And sometimes I'll hear well-meaning Christians dismiss the Old Testament as not having the same authority as the New Testament. But clearly, Jesus didn't feel that way. Now, granted, there are parts of the Old Testament that are, that are not that exciting to read. Uh, I mean, the book of Numbers. You ever read through the book of Numbers? Little tedious, isn't it? And some of it, some of it's violent. Some of it's bloody. Uh, some of it is very difficult to understand and And we no longer need to follow all the rules concerning the temple worship or sacrifice of what foods are are kosher or unclean. But the moral law found in the Old Testament is still very relevant to the Christian life. I mean, the Ten Commandments, they're still binding on us, besides being really, really good advice. I mean, if you follow the Ten Commandments, it'll keep you out of a lot of trouble. Uh, The other day, my wife uh, was having a conversation with a work colleague that she has been uh, spiritually mentoring. And this woman told Melinda, she said, you know, if you want to get into heaven, you have to know the Ten Commandments. I mean, you have to be able to repeat them back. And Melinda's like, you mean right there at the gates of heaven, there's going to be a test? And you got to know the Ten Commandments? That's a lot of pressure. And uh, the woman, she stopped for a moment, and she thought about it, and she said, no, that can't be right. It's all about Jesus, right? Melinda said, bingo. <laughs> That's what it's about. It's about Jesus. Now, he still wants you to follow those Ten Commandments. But, folks, that's not what gets you in to the gate. Aren't you glad? I mean, what if you missed one of those Ten Commandments? Wouldn't that be awful? You see, sometimes not understanding that the place of Scripture in our lives leads to antinomianism. What? Okay, you've probably never heard that word unless you went to seminary. But I actually heard it used the other day in a meeting, believe it or not. I was so impressed by this person. But it means literally anti-law. And it's the belief that there are no moral laws that God expects Christians to obey. Antinomianism takes what's a biblical teaching and it brings it to an unbiblical conclusion. See, the biblical teaching is that Christians are not required to observe all the Old Testament law as some kind of means of salvation. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he fulfilled the Old Testament law. But the unbiblical conclusion is, therefore, there is no moral law that Christians are to obey. Now, there's a certain amount of that that appeals to me, you know. I mean, that can be kind of great sometimes, but... It was an issue as early as the first century. The Apostle Paul dealt with it in Romans chapter 6. He says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. He says we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So so people were asking, Hey Paul, 
you know, now that I'm saved, you know, I, you know, and it's all by grace and all my sins are forgiven, I can do anything I want, right? Paul says, no. He says, you died to sin. Why would you want to continue to sin, to rebel against God? That out of gratitude for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, you should want to please him. Besides that, there is a moral law that we need to follow, that God expects us to obey. We find it in, in 1 John chapter 5. It says this, this is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Now, what is this law God expects, expects us to obey? It's the law of Christ. And what's the law of Christ? Love God, love your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. See, it's about love. So we're not obligated to obey all 613 of the Jewish religious rules. We are under the law of Christ, and the law of Christ is the law of love. And if we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we'll do nothing to displease God. And if we love others as we love ourselves, then we're going to do no harm to our neighbor. And so God expects us to live a life of morality, integrity, and love. Jesus freed us from the burdensome commands of the Old Testament law, but this is not some kind of license to live however we want. Again, 1 John chapter 2 says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. The truth is not in him. But if we obey his words, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So Jesus isn't looking for some kind of external obedience to the law. Now this will seem to contradict what I've just been talking about. But righteousness does not come about by obeying all the external rules as the Pharisees did and then choosing to ignore the internal aspect of the law. We, we get a glimpse of, of what God is looking for. We find it actually in Jeremiah chapter 31. And you should be familiar with this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'm going to make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It's not going to be like the, like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, even though I was like a husband to them. This is a covenant I'm going to make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they'll be my people. So it's the internal obedience to the law is what God has always been looking for. God is going to write it in our hearts and, and in our minds. And this prophecy finally comes true in, in Matthew 26. Jesus knows the end is near. The shadow of the cross is looming large. He gathers his followers with him in the upper room for the Passover meal. And he says, take and eat. This is my body. They're thinking, what? And he takes the cup. He gives thanks. He says, drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus was saying there at that Passover meal, the old covenant, the covenant with Abraham and the Jewish people, it's gone. This new covenant, it's not going to just be with, with one 
nation, with one group of people. It's going to be for the whole world. And in it, God is offering this brand new relationship with all people, not based on obeying external laws, but on this inward obedience. So each time we take communion, we're reminded of this new covenant, this new thing that God wants to do in our hearts. No longer will we need to memorize and obey all 613 rules. Through the new covenant, God is going to write them on our hearts so that we will want to obey him. So the truth is that God was never about all the rules. It's not like there was the God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. The rules, Paul says in Galatians, they were a guardian. They were a tutor until faith came. And my guess is that some of us here today, you, you see God as a God of judgment. You see God as a, 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 as a God of, of rules and regulations, a taskmaster waiting to pounce on any infraction of the law. But what God has always been looking for is this heart relationship. What God cares about more than your outward obedience to the law is that inward righteousness. That Jesus came to reignite that relational, internal intention of the law. And God wants to write it on your hearts. Paul says in Romans 2, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart. By the Spirit, not in a written code. <clears throat> One of the rules in our home growing up was my job was to mow the yard. And uh, I hated it. Now, we had a big yard, about an acre, and then I had to mow my grandparents' yard as well, who lived right next door. I did everything I could to get out of mowing that yard. In fact, today, if you talk to my family, my, my sisters and brother-in-laws, they'll, they'll tell you stories, you know, of how I found clever ways to get out of one of the few jobs I really had to do around the house. And sometimes when I'd find a way to, to get out of it or I wouldn't do it, you know, and my mother would use shame. She'd say, Mark, look at your dad out there. He's been working at the office all day long. And now he's having to do the job that you wouldn't do. Don't you feel awful? And I would look down at my shoes and, uh, and I would try to look remorseful. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mom. I won't do it again. But I did. And then when I was 12... My dad brought home a riding lawnmower. Now, folks, to a 12-year-old boy, that's almost a car, okay? <laughs> and I was so excited. Now, I, I loved to mow the yard. It was fun. It was recreational. Even my friends were, were envious. They would, they would come over to the house, Mark, can I help mow the yard? Can I, can I just take a couple, couple paths with it? And, and I learned how to sh keep the blade sharp and how to change the oil. But you know what? I still didn't care about obeying the rule. And then when I hit 16, I got a real car and girls. And I found that a riding lawnmower wasn't quite as much fun at 16 as it was at 12 but something that happened in those four years. 
I began to see mowing the yard a little bit differently. I began to understand that it was my part, a small part, in helping to keep the family home looking nice. And I began to have a different understanding of what my father did for his family. And I found myself actually wanting to ease his workload. And I found that I didn't want to disappoint my parents because I loved them. What had happened? My motivation had changed. It was no longer a, a rule that I had to obey. And folks, that's the difference between an outward righteousness of following all the rules and an inward righteousness of the heart that wants to please the Father out of gratefulness. And so I moved from the faith of a child to the faith of an adolescent to the faith of an adult. Where do you find yourself today? And what would happen if you began to love God and to love others? Not because you have to try and stay out of, you know, that other place. But because you want to. And what would happen if we began to invest our lives in others? If we studied God's word, if we prayed, if we served, if we worshipped, if we practiced generosity. Not out of some kind of, of an obligation to an angry God. But out of gratefulness for all that he's done for us. How might it change your life even today? Let's pray. Oh God, you love hearts that are submissive. You love hearts of faith. Word of God, rule and reign in us and produce a life of obedience to your will. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.